0: Hey everybody. And welcome to another live stream of the ask a cycling coach podcast. It's just the two of us today. Nate, dad is gone. (laughs) That's right. But. Chad coach, Chad's crown stays here. So the King left his crown with us. Thanks Chad for doing that. Very kind of him. Uh, this is going to be a somewhat different episode, obviously with just the two of us, uh, but we are going to be talking about a beginner's guide to racing. So I asked a question in the Facebook podcast group, which that's the trainer roads, ask a cycling coach podcast, Facebook group. You can find it on there by just searching on Facebook. And I, we got a lot of feedback on things that people wish they knew when they started racing or still don't understand about racing. Cause racing is a confusing world. Yep. especially cycling. So, uh we're going to cover a bunch of that stuff. Uh so if you're joining us right now on Facebook or YouTube, uh, you can go down there and, and add in comments as we're going through. I'll be monitoring YouTube. Nate will be looking at Facebook. Uh, so we'll be talking about the different things that you're talking about. It's going to be more of like a discussion between all of us. So it's going to be a slightly different podcast. And for those that are joining, I guess with the podcast, we should probably kick that properly off and then we can explain the same to them, I guess. Right. <laughs> well, they, they're, how, about, how about this has already started. It's already started. Yep. All right. That works for me. So, uh, like we said, uh, this is the ask a cycling coach podcast, and this is where you can ask cycling and triathlon related questions. And we're going to do that live today. You can usually do that at trainerroadcom slash podcast, but in this case, we're on Facebook and YouTube, and we're going to talk all about that stuff. Uh, before we get into it though, uh, like I mentioned the ask a cycling coach podcast, Facebook group, that thing is growing constantly. Lots of awesome interaction there. If you have training questions, you can go in there and ask them. Uh, or really if you have like more things, like you're seeking feedback from a lot of other people, then that's a really good spot to do it.
1: And there's a poll up there. What I want is, is losing, but (laughs) I kind of wanted to create our own train road forum because the amount of people in both the beta group and the Facebook group, it's so much that it's really hard to keep up with comments and threads. It's a ton. I want to create our own forum. I don't care what the forum platform is. But we put a poll up there and everyone's like no stay with Facebook
0: yeah but because we want it, w- it to be more organized like basically it's really hard for you it'd be great because there's so much great conversation going on in there so it'd be great if it was more searchable and discoverable and you could organize it what it's what I topic.
1: want is a is a <clears throat> excuse me is a nice list of like thread topics so mm-hmm. you can look down mark which ones are red and which ones aren't and then have that link to the form mm-hmm. in our software, on our website. I want to do single sign-on, so you can just click it, and you can go into the forum. I want to do yeah. badges based on, like, like some people have been with us since our very, very first launch week, which it's a lot awesome. has changed. Or, like, <laughs> if you've done over so many rides, like, we can get fun with it. We can have the TR admins in that. You could ask support questions in there because mm-hmm. um, we have a section for that. But everyone just wants to stay on Facebook. I know. But only like a hundred people voted last time I checked, out of like the thousands of people on there.
0: So we need more people to vote. Yeah. So go in there, uh, cast your votes. I feel like we've swayed perhaps the vote a bit, uh, Nate. Uh, good, good politicianing, politicianing there.
1: It could be awesome, but you don't. Uh, what we also don't want to do though is like split the community. Yeah. Because yeah. then it's then you if you split it, both could die. Of course. Not not that they would die, but you know what I mean? They're just not as powerful.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, Something I want to mention before we go any deeper is we put up another race analysis video, this time with GoPro footage on two of Team Cliff Bar's riders, so Pete, Uh and also putting them on Jacob Gerhardt. So he's a, a fast racer for Cliff Bar, too.
1: And it was, uh, this is cool because instead of a local race, this was a P1-2 race in Northern California State District Champs. Or District, district champs, champs, yeah. yeah. But uh, this district is extremely competitive. Mm-hmm. It's Mike's Mike Bikes, Cliff Bar, It's Mark one of the Pro. fastest
0: ones, though, yeah. Yeah,
1: exactly. A lot of national champs come from this district. Uh, so I actually learned a lot. And the way that they race this one is different than all the other ways they race the crits. Yeah. Um, kind of makes me want to... If I could handle, if I could take the co- corners, I feel like I could hang in the crit. Yeah, you yeah. Know, whenever you watch those videos, right. I watch the, Tour de France <laughs> yeah. too. Like something that, that people don't think about is in the Tour de France on these flat stages, as long as it doesn't go uphill, you could probably sit in the Peloton. Yeah. Yeah. You right. Could have, it's like a hundred Watts. Yeah. A lot of times they're freewheeling. The front is something completely different, but yeah, when so you're in that massive pack.
0: As long as you're a comfortable and like good bike handler. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's Cause the, then you can save energy in there too. Yeah. You know, a ton of energy. Yeah. Yeah, we we actually uh we're joking around that we should have just, you know, put live commentary for this episode over the Tour de France, no. but uh, Chad uh,
1: we we'll give Chad like three beers. <laughs> he, we try to shield you guys from this, but he hates a lot of pro cyclists. He loves some, but then some he just hates. And if you guys could hear his real, like,
0: uh, uncensored his, Chad commentary, I know, thoughts,
1: uh, <laughs> people would probably hate us and partners would hate us, but, uh, yeah, it's, no, pretty he it's really just certain writers. He he's doesn't a, like whiners.
0: Don't whine. If you're a writer, <laughs> <laughs> Chad does not like just that. period. He's yeah. an opinionated man on that. He is, but that would be awesome. So you can check out that uh, race analysis It's over on Cliff Bar, uh, where we put on live commentary over that race, and you can check that out. Or I should say it's over on YouTube, forgive me, uh, youtube.com slash trainer road. You can find it on there.
1: Jonathan, someone said, uh, make sure your bolts on your chair are secure, Nate. Yeah.
0: <laughs> funny, <laughs> Good. funny guy. If you don't know uh, about that, you can jump back to us talking about the 40 KTT recap. Um, so I, really what we wanted to talk about with this one is a, a really a beginner's guide to racing and I think the best place to start with this
1: is the prep for this weekend's race, <laughs> exactly. Can we talk yes, about that. Yeah, yeah. Let's do
0: that. <laughs> so, uh, and you'll, I'm sure be grabbing some stuff to show here, but so, uh, this weekend, Nate, I'm not doing Leadville. Um, I'm just once again, rehabbing the knee. So, uh, but Nate, on the other hand is doing Leadville. He's already qualified through the lottery. Yeah. However, I wouldn't call it qualify, but yeah, that's true. You're en- gained in entry. You're in, yeah. But uh, with Leadville, for people that don't know, you have start corrals, which basically are just like tiered or, or staggered start groups. And in this case, you want to improve your position there. And also it's a good opportunity to have another shakedown on a long or mountain bike race. Right. Yeah. Well, so Tahoe trail 100 is the qualifier doing yes. on Saturday.
1: So for Leadville, there's, I think seven corrals or eight, I'm not sure. There's mm-hmm. a lot. And what people say is being. In the last corral, the white corral, which is first-time riders or people and people who haven't done a qualifying mm-hmm. attempt, they add about thirty minutes to their overall Leadville time just yeah. because they have to go through so many people. And you could be a you know a five watt per kilo racer in the back, yeah, and some other people maybe they they qualified for the second to last corral. They're probably three watts or 2.5, like yeah. somewhere in there. Yeah. And you just, you have to go through all those people. And there's, I think over 2000 racers. It's a lot on mountain bike trails. That's a lot of people. And it get. could
0: very well be way more than a half hour. Uh, you know, you'll spend a lot of time walking and because it's just, it log jams and you get yep. stuck.
1: Yep. People like me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it'll clip. happen. Right. And then, uh, so there's qualifiers all around the U S mm-hmm. and these are events that are similar to. Tahoe or to um, Leadville, yep. Where they're high elevation, usually not always though, not always. And they're kind of fire roady mountain bike races, and usually pretty long. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have time cut off, so you don't have to place in a certain age group. Mm-hmm. You just have to beat a certain time, and then you get into a corral. And yep. the corrals go gold, red, green. I should have them up, but I, I don't. Yeah. And for Tahoe Trail 100, gold never going to happen. That's like. Levi Leipheimer like, barely makes gold. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> red is a 515 on this course. So this is a 100K, like, 60-mile course, and it's a 515. And uh, based on talking to another local racer who's actually listening to the podcast right now, Craig Manning, mm-hmm. 515. If he can't do a 515, I'm not going to do a 515. <laughs> yeah, he did exactly it last year yeah. when he was, uh, he was pretty fit, yeah. 4 watts per kilo around, and he's a very good mountain bike handler. He didn't make it. So the next cutoff, though, is six hours. Which so is 45 of minutes. Time. Yeah, so I'm trying to aim in there. So the green corral. Um, so the thing that is, besides the elevation, the thing that's stressing me the most is nutrition. Because when you get in these long, long, <laughs> these long, long uh, races, Nutrition, like really, really matters,
0: especially on a mountain bike, because it's not as easy to take in your nutrition. Like it's, um, you can find yourself going without for a long time just because it's technical or it just isn't, doesn't allow it. Or, you know, there are plenty of different reasons where it gets even more complex. Even the jostling that you'll have on the mountain bike can be really tough. The slower speed might mean it's going to be, you know, perceived hotter conditions or what you're under, you know, less evaporative cooling that you'll have. Yep. Uh, there's plenty of complications that come with it. So Uh yeah, and you you so you have a full plan laid out right? Like you you spreadsheeted the thing. I went full triathlete. (laughs) Okay, yeah, and
1: I, I did a spreadsheet, and I actually sat down with with Pete yesterday. Okay, um, and so what we're aiming for, what I'm aiming for, is 100 grams of carbs per hour. Okay, with a mix of about 70 30 uh, glucose to fructose.
0: So is that, isn't it like grams of carbohydrate? How much does that work to in calories? That's four, uh, four calories per gram of carbohydrate. So So 400 calories an hour. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot.
1: And I'm, I'm big and what, so what, what, which I question this, but the -hmm. the, the rule of thumb is someone can absorb about 60 grams of glucose and about 30 grams of fructose, or maybe about 70 grams of glucose right around there to, to, uh, make it to be about a hundred grams per hour. Mm. Um and that's why there's two different uh your body absorbs both of those a little bit differently and that's how you can kind of get by the the 60 to 70 ceiling of glucose by also having fructose at the same time. Okay. But it's hard because packages don't just say percent glucose versus percent. fructose, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you google around, you can figure it out and what the products I'm using is and I don't think I think Science & Sport sent us like a couple of boxes of this, yeah, but yeah. now I pay retail for it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I just want to say that and yeah. then everything else.
0: And Martin sent me some of that stuff, Okay. but it wasn't related to the podcast at all. Okay. I think they just spammed a bunch of people with like a certain amount of followers on Instagram because I followed up with them and said, hey, I want more and they've disappeared. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently a lot of people have had the same experience, but they were smart because it's hooked me. Exactly. So send
1: us free stuff, but I'll mention it if it's free. Um, so what I'm going to do is the first hour I'm going to use the, this Martin drink. I've never used it. Yeah. Not worried about it, but what it it basically is, it's that mix of maltodextrin and fructose to get the right, uh, uh, ratio of, uh, glucose to fructose. And, uh, it's 100, what is it? 99 grams of carbs.
0: Yeah. And, And that's in one bottle exactly so you the the it's it, so it's m a u r t e n we've talked about it before but that one of the strict things is that it's mixed with the right amount of water because i guess that the way that the really the 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 drink is delivered is it has these little capsules that swell when you know water hits them and if they swell to a specific point Then it should change the viscosity of the water evenly. And then as a result, like, I guess that it swells to a point where your body can easily process it and something chemically happens to it when it's mixed at the right level is what they say. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but the one thing that I would say above all is that's known as being extremely mild on your stomach. But I've noticed like it basically just like raises my tide. Like yeah. it doesn't it doesn't cause a crazy spike, but it just raises the tide, so the lows aren't quite as low.
1: One thing for people to think about is check your nutrition because. Uh sometimes people have problems absorbing fructose Mm -hmm. and that can get into, uh, that's looking can be a main problem with like gut digestion. So whatever you're looking for, see if it has that in it. Um, and other people, you might be eating more than that kind of 30 calories an hour ceiling and you might not even know it because your product, you could be eating products that are, let's say half and half. Yeah. And then if you're eating 100, uh, 100 grams of carbs an hour, you could be at 50 Mm -hmm. and then that's when you're going to start to get, uh, problems you're not going to digest as well. You could get diarrhea, which I've had in the middle of a race is horrendous. Yeah, uh, <laughs> triathlons. When, when you're running, like it, the, the, the porta potty has to be right <laughs> yeah. there. It's the yeah. worst. So anyways, the, the, my, I, my thought is the first hour, one of these, um, science and sports also has a, they call it beta fuel, mm, which their is a new one. They just released I which saw. is great marketing. It's yeah. not out yet, <laughs> Yeah. but with that sky, with the Giro attack with Chris Froome, yeah. uh, he used the beta fuel. Right then.
0: Right, right yeah, then. Of that's why he, he did is. it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's
1: the same kind of thought as in one bottle, let's get 100 grams of calories and let's get the yeah. the, the right uh, ratio. Yeah. So. Uh, so you'll be drinking that in a bottle. First hour. And that's because too, it is easier for the first hour. It's a climb. Yeah. Pretty much. I don't want to be uh, reaching into my pocket. It's easier just to drink it. Yeah, right? totally.
0: Much easier than trying to rip open a gel and all that stuff. But after yeah. that.
1: I can't, like, I'm not gonna carry, what, like, five bottles of this, yeah, exactly, right? six yeah, bottles yeah. of this. Yeah. Uh, so after that, I'm gonna move to. Uh,
0: what about in your other bottle? So you're gonna have that mix, and then are you just gonna have like a scratch? You, I know, I think you usually use scratch for I,
1: hydration. For the first hour, I'm gonna do water because I have yeah. enough calories in here. Yeah. And if I did scratch in the other one, I drank both. I yeah. could get so much carbs in my stomach that I could have stomach distress.
0: Right. That makes sense.
1: So after, yeah. so water and Martan 320 for the first hour. Okay. And then after that, I'm going to do two bottles of hydration mix Okay. and they're going to have goo hydration mix there. Yeah. And I haven't Googled it actually, but i assume it's all, I think it's all, uh,
0: yeah, I, sugar. you know, with my picky stomach, I've still had good luck with goo.
1: Okay. So, and so that's going to be around 80 calories, uh, an hour per bottle. I'm going to try to do two bottles per hour. Okay. It's going to be hot. Yep. Um, and I like to drink to like a plan. Yeah. Um, pure triathlete. <laughs> and then after that, <laughs> I'm going to do a honey stinger packet, and I have two flavors of this. This is the uh, the uh, pink lemonade, and I also have the cherry cola. The cherry cola has uh, caffeine in it. So How you know,
0: many gram- milligrams of caffeine do you know?
1: I don't know. It's not that much. Okay. But I'm going to switch off between the two okay. because I like to kind of like— like a true drug, like get a mellow high. You know what I mean?
0: <laughs> just kind of keep yourself floating. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay, Cause gotcha. if you go too
1: much, it can also make you feel sick. If you go, yeah. all eat all your caffeine too early in the race. Um, it's, you can, it just, you, I get this feeling where like, I want to go forward. I get pushed and pushed and pushed and it can yeah. be too much. It's like overwhelming. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah.
1: And then, uh, one science and sport gel. And that puts me at, uh, a total of 102 grams an hour okay. of carbs. Yeah. 19.5 of those from fructose because these honey honey stinger packets are a one-to-one ratio.
0: Okay, fructose to glucose. Yep. Okay. And
1: then the other one is, uh, and I'm going to have 83 grams of glucose. So,
0: so you're packing a lot of gels. Over the whole ride, how many do you think you're going to have to carry?
1: Well, it's not going to be so much, actually, because uh, there are... When we go to the start finish, it's a, it's a one loop course.
0: So you're going to fill up then.
1: Yep. And I'm going to have a cooler and I'm going to just repeat the whole process. Yeah. Once I get to my cooler, I'm going to do another bottle of this Martin stuff Yep, and then have the, the packet and, and, and this. So it's, it's, I think it's going to be manageable. It'll be easy. Okay,
0: yeah. cool. So it, how many gels do you think you'll consume across the whole ride?
1: Uh, one, two, four gels. If I have this math right.
0: Seems like not that many for you. I know it was four but packs of you're honey stinger, lot. So you're four gels four of those.
1: and two bottles of that. Yeah. And then one, two, three, four, five, six, eight bottles of, of drink too.
0: Yeah. So and the good two amount. bottles of martin. Yeah. So the it's going to be, drinking.
1: it's still going to be 400 <laughs> an hour.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You'll still hit that mark. Yeah. Yeah. That's so this course is one that's going to be pretty non-technical in terms of the trails that it's on. However, it does have kind of like the surface makes it technical in spots because it's really blown out like we have here in Tahoe quite regularly in this region just the Sierra, it doesn't have much to hold the earth together. It just kind of breaks apart pretty easily. So, a lot of people at this race really go like weight weenie setup because it's not overly rocky or anything like that. Are you what are you going to do for tires?
1: I know, we had it so there's a lot of discussion on We've talked about, about, about this a lot. And I'm going with the I'm going with what I think I'm going to use at Leadville, which is okay. Thunderbird in the rear, Yeah, 2.25, okay. and uh, Racing Ralph in the front, 2.25.
0: Nice. Yeah, a little more. It's always better to have a little more control in the front like that. If your front goes away, it's curtains. If your rear goes away, it's fine. You, know, you can usually recover from something like that. Mm-hmm. But in the front, and especially because you have more weight over the rear, so you really want better rolling resistance, or I should say least or lower rolling resistance in the rear, so it makes sense to go with something that's a little faster rolling in the back.
1: And then based on on this course, I might then – I could go to a beefier front tire, Mm -hmm. but I don't think I'll go anything less –
0: Yeah. Like less grippy. You know, I – Schwalbe's test really well in terms of rolling resistance, you know, rolling on a drum is very different from rolling on, you know, in in normal circumstances, but at the same time it tests really well. So I can't help, but think that the Schwalbe's actually could be a good choice on this course. I can't believe I'm saying that, but (laughs) the reason that I'm saying that is because the knob height, for the rolling resistance yet is pretty high. It's like pretty deep. Yeah. So, and when you're dealing with loose terrain, you really want knob depth. Like that's what really is going to make the difference. So like even cyclocross, if you're riding in something that's mulchy or loamy, that's where you want something with deeper knobs. Uh, if you're mountain biking, same thing. If you're riding on like a SoCal hard pack type of stuff, you do not want deep knobs, you want something that's extremely low profile or has a ton of little knobs that have like similar height across the board. But the Schwabies have like very few knobs and they're really tall. So I think that it's a smart choice. Even, you know, the Rocket Ron up there, I think it's still going to be a good choice up front. So uh, anything else unique you're doing for your bike or anything?
1: No, that's it. I'm kind of the only, I'm still kind of concerned about my nutrition because I'm eating a little bit too much glucose. And I I wish I could have a little more fructose. I thought of just now I could like. Count out individual honey stinger gels. Because I could like change that ratio. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could. But then I would hurt the uh I don't think I'd be able to get the uh the gels at the right ratio. So other, other No, I'm gonna check all my bolts. <laughs> make sure my cranks is good. connected. Yeah, uh, we made yeah. sure my bike shifts. That's good. And That's I think I figured nice out know. what my problem was with shifting m- before. Yeah. Uh mechanic Ian. He said that my cable was kind of pulled. Uh, and I think putting it in my car, yeah. I turned my handlebars, and that pulled the cable.
0: That totally makes sense. Yep. Yep. So that, makes sense. that
1: just means the morning of, I should be checking that and then running to the mechanic station if yeah, there's a problem.
0: That makes sense. Uh, so this one, are you going to pace? Do you have any pacing plan? Or are you just going to try to... What's What's the goal there? Are you going to try to stick to a power number?
1: Since the, the new goal is like under six hours, yeah. and I think that's pretty doable, Yeah. Um, it would be... I'm not going to go super duper deep mm-hmm. because that takes me it's there's a difference between like going at like 90 and 100 effort 90 yeah. effort like you can save four or five days in recovery i feel like yeah, yeah. when you empty it all the way especially for those long races yeah it takes forever to come back long time um if i was smart i would have the second lap be faster than the first lap yeah in my brain i think i should do that yeah but i think i'm gonna get caught up i'm in, sure You'll in get the first very climb yeah. and i'm gonna say Five fifteen sounds pretty good. Yeah. But really there's probably gonna be no difference in my result at Leadville being those two corrals since they're so close to each other.
0: So races that have, so this will have a lot of people at it, but it's no Leadville in terms of size. Yeah. Uh, and it's got a lot of fire road. So you'd think that the rate, the start isn't quite as critical as like a normal cross country race where you go straight into single track or you have a bunch of people. But in this case, it's actually extremely dusty, like so dusty. In fact, that I don't know if you'll be able to really make a lot of forward progress. If you get caught in the dust cloud, like you'll just kind of have to stop. So in one respect, you'd think that this course positioning, isn't that key because you don't hit single track for a while. but I actually do think that in this case, positioning yourself, you know, maybe burning a match or two in the beginning, it actually is a gamble that you, you know, you might want to consider because of that dust. Cause it could really slow you down. I've been up there just doing, you know, shuttling laps on the lifts and it's, Incredibly dusty.
1: Yeah, the dust on the, the descent scares me because yeah. you don't want to. I know there's a fast descent. I just talked to again Craig, a racer who's done it before. Mm-hmm. He hit forty a few times on the descent,
0: which is fast on a mountain bike. Yeah,
1: and if you it's fast on any bike. Yeah, and if you can't see.
0: can't see anything. Can't see anything. It's really bad. Yeah. (laughs) So that'll be interesting. Uh, stay tuned to our, uh, to our Instagram over the weekend. And we'll give you a couple updates from that. Um, I'll be up there, uh, cheering you on Nate and seeing if you need help when you drop through on the, on that, on that lap.
1: So so Chad's on vacation. Uh, don't think he's doing it.
0: No, Chad's not doing it. I think Chad is still probably going to come to Leadville with us, but he obviously isn't going to be racing. We're going to make him come. Yeah, exactly. It'll be fun that way. Uh, so, uh, let's get into some questions that y'all have sent in about, uh, racing, geez, all the different things. I know when I first started bike racing, I was, I'm very, you know, I'm a vain person, I'm always worried that to make sure that I don't step wrong, you know, and, and sort of like, you know, look like the Fred or something like that. And there's a lot to learn in terms of cycling. And I was, I felt like a fish out of water just cause it was so there's so many little things, yep. everything from pinning your number, which a lot of people talked about to knowing which category to sign up for, to knowing that I needed a license to, uh, you know, plenty of different stuff, uh, how to ride in a group, all that. So, um, uh, but the first thing I wanted to cover is I guess, selecting a race and finding out which type of race a person should do. Cause a lot of people say, what is the best one to start out with? Yeah. What would you say?
1: I would say it's going to sound, and if, if it's a non-technical crit, yeah. I think that's the easiest, especially if it's laps, because if you do get dropped, you can get back in yeah. and, uh, it, they, they sound like, I know crits are known for crashing, yeah. but I think if you, if it's non-technical, you'll be okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It cr- sounds crazy, but I think that a crit isn't a bad place to start as long as, you know, like you said. Because you can get reps and that's the thing that you won't really get with like, yeah, you know, like a grand fondo. I think a lot of people think that that's the first way and it's not a bad way to get started, but the problem with doing that is that you're usually doing a giant loop. So you have a lot of apprehension about different aspects of the course and you might get dropped off and then you end up riding by yourself. So it's really not a race in that respect.
1: Here, here's the progression that I think yeah. people should go through is first you're kind of riding by yourself outside and you get comfortable. Yeah. Then you ride with a couple friends that you know. Yep. And then you go to either like an organized group and usually towns have a, um, like in, at least in Reno, and I, I'm, I think major towns have this, yeah. they'll have different levels of groups. And yeah. I feel like the first group to ride with are the old guys.
0: Yeah, I did that. They're called the procrastinating peddlers. They're I did it a too. group of old gentlemen here. But yeah.
1: they're uh usually there's I've I've seen in other towns too. They're over sixty, around sixty. Yeah. Uh a lot of them have been riding for many, 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 many years. Yeah. Very smart. Um and, uh, but they're not killing the pace yeah. and you can ride with them and get just wisdom
0: and knowledge and they share it <laughs> exactly right. They let you know when you're doing things wrong. Uh, they'll, they'll really help you guide you. I mean, one of the first things that I did when I first started riding with them was the first group I was riding with. Remember the guy behind me said, you're looking at wheels and like, don't look at wheels. So then I started looking at like the saddle area. He's like, no, no, no. You want to look at over the shoulder of the person in front of you, toward people ahead of you, just little tips like that, that you'll pick up when you find those groups. And if it's hard to find those groups, then go to a bike shop and ask them where are the local group rides, or what are the local groups that I can ride with? Yep. And then it, and the cool part is, especially with those ones that are more like beginner friendly, like that, they're really welcoming. Like they're never, they're, they're eager to accept you. Even though a race environment can feel pretty intimidating. A lot of the time, these group red ones are not at all.
1: And it's good when you show up to say. Hey, I'm a new rider. Uh, I'm looking for advice on how to be a better rider. Yeah. Just put it out there. Yeah. Uh, the same thing goes with triathletes with, um, for swimming. So many people I know go to master's classes or like group swims and they're like, oh, I'm not getting any better. Like, yeah. would well, you ask the coach to watch you?
0: They're like, yeah.
1: well, no. And then when you ask that, and then usually the coaches are so bored up there that yeah. they really, really, really <laughs> want to like train somebody or coach somebody.
0: What but, about off-road stuff? What would you say for a good place well, to start? I feel yeah. like cyclocross, like has a lot of moving parts to it, but it's not, it doesn't, it's not as high consequence as mountain biking, right? Yeah. So even if you're a mountain biker, if you're worried about getting started in racing, a cross race might actually be a good place to start.
1: For mountain biking, it's, it's tough because there's so, there's people like me who feel like a fish out of water and there's other people who just are naturally good. But it's, I think it's all about not getting into a train over your head too early. Mm -hmm. And it's actually, I think, Sometimes riding with better riders, they don't know, they don't realize like their easy is still your expert. Yeah, exactly. And they're like, We're gonna go on an easy trail. Yeah. And uh it's not it's not easy. Yeah. For me, uh just having totally buffed out smooth, smooth trails to just like feel comfortable riding on dirt. Yeah. Um would be good before I see any rocks. Yeah, exactly. Right. Or anything
0: rocks, throw it off. It's a, it's minors. pretty much,
1: it's a progression with yeah. mountain biking, uh, just like anything else.
0: Yeah. Another misnomer that I kind of want to cover is a lot of people think that they have to be fast before they race. Like I need to be at a certain bar before I yeah. race, but I, I, I know when I first started out, I was not very, I started racing. I started racing pretty early on when I started cycling, it was within the first year and I was not very fast at all. Uh, you know, and, and it, and I've realized that I still beat plenty of people that were, you know, that were still, they were regulars that raced all the time. So it wasn't as if like, I needed to cross a bar. You can be, you know, it, you don't have to be crazy. For you're me. exceptional though, too. The, it's true. The, <laughs> yeah, it is, isn't it? it, it? Is, it's very true. But I, I know what you mean in the sense that like, I came in perhaps at a higher level is what yeah, you're yeah. saying.
1: You had a whole like career of, uh, um... The motocross stuff yeah, coming yeah. through, so your level was higher than other people. Right. The one thing that I I think is pretty universal to most people is you come into your first crit or road race mm-hmm. and you think you're so fit and you realize you are not fit. <laughs> yeah. There's a whole like there's eight more levels above you. Yeah. Um, and that can be that's why I think a road race is not the best to start, especially if it's hilly. Yeah. Because that first hill comes and everyone's doing six seven hundred watts up it, and you've never experienced that. Yeah. You, you get dropped and you just ride right by yourself. Yeah. But going back to like the progression for yeah. road racers, uh, so you do the the group of like slower people and then get to more bigger, faster group rides mm-hmm. in your area. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can go into, uh, inside of their tube if there's any clinics, totally do clinics. Mm-hmm. Um, we used to have in Reno a Wednesday night clinic, a crit clinic, and every Wednesday night they'd we'd go out and there'd be, again, older people. Mm -hmm. There was a gentleman who owned a bike shop who was very knowledgeable, and he'd like ride beside you and tell you what you're doing right and wrong. And then we'd have special laps where we'd be, okay, it's a three-up lap. All three of you guys are gonna go and you're gonna see who can win. Yeah. And you get to, like, battle each other for that. Yeah. And they put people of similar fitness levels.
0: And it's and that's something that you can do even just with a small group of friends, you know? Yeah. Like, uh, if that isn't organized in your region, you can still make it happen a, a pickup game, so to speak, yeah. you know?
1: But don't just go from, like, riding by yourself to crit. Yeah, yeah. Do I the progression.
0: Yeah, I think it's a good idea. Uh, in terms of uh, another... Thing that I want to cover too for for the off-road stuff. You'll see that with lower categories and mountain biking, lower categories almost always race a short distance, and then the distance steps up. Uh, in like road races and crits, it's usually similar to that too. Uh, criterium is timed, so it's usually like a half hour for for new racers or somewhere around there. Whereas for you know the higher or the really elite categories, those ones I shouldn't use elite because that's confusing. The very fast categories, those ones will be longer six. 90 minutes maybe Um, road races it's usually tiered too so if you're wondering before you go to a race like I don't want to get in over my head then that's a really good way to make sure that that happens Um,
1: Eric asks a good question he said he just started cycling November and he jumped right into racing to say that I'm slow is being kind how much training does one need to to finally be pack fodder it's super frustrating so he's a 37 year old male at an FTP of uh, 240 Mm -hmm. and I would say Eric I don't know about your weight but 240 is enough to kind of like totally. stay in a pack. Totally is. So what I'm thinking, Eric, is his problem are, and this is accelerations. This is what you like the, when you go from riding by yourself yeah. to a, a pack riding and you feel how fast those accelerations are. Yes. It's amazing.
0: Yeah. And I, another thing that I think of is, and it goes with those accelerations is efficiency in a group. Yeah. A lot of people think they aren't fit enough, but really it's just, you watch like a lot of really good riders. They come in and like, uh, you know. Chad's mentioned this plenty of times there are guys that can sit on the couch all winter but they're such ex, you know experienced racers and they have a lot of depth they can pull on in terms of fitness but they can ride so efficiently that they do way less work than you yeah and they're able to get away with it. That's something that comes with time in a group. you just learn to ride more efficiently. you learn to you know save energy and to spot different ways where you can you know really coast when others are pedaling. It's that sort of stuff and when you figure that out, an FTP of 240. if it's a flat race, that's plenty to stick into a a group with a beginner group. Yeah. So, uh, if it's, you know, a a race with climbs and you weigh, you know, a significant amount, then that's, that's obviously going to be a limiter, but
1: Eric. So one thing, especially being a new rider in the lower categories, you get this feeling that you have to cover every single gap and you can't Mm -hmm. ever let a gap open. Mm -hmm. So if you're in, let's say there's the pack here and you are in the, uh, let's say you're in the first third of the pack. And their acceleration happens. You don't have to cover that yeah. acceleration completely hard. If you wait a second, the whole two thirds of the pack, people will come by you, come around to you, and then you can like it's a um, you can get in their draft, and it's a slower acceleration, and that helps so much. Yes. And every time there's a uh, a breakaway, you don't have to do it. What what happens? You don't, I mean, if, every time there's a breakaway, you don't have to cover it. Yeah. What the hard part is, is if you're in the very back of the group and there's acceleration, you have to.
0: Work hard you, to stay on that group. Yeah, you
1: have to stay on that group. Mm-hmm. And being new, you might not, you feel more comfortable being at the back. But it can be a lot more um, seesaw, like a not yeah. seesaw, but a, it's a, a rubber banding. Yeah. So, and with the corners too, if people are slowing down the corners and accelerating out, it can be mm-hmm. really hard to ride in the back. So yeah. try to be in that first third and just let people. I, I just did a, a race and I was um, my power to weight in my FTP is was high for that so four or five race. Yeah, and I would, but I still I didn't want to cover it. I yeah. knew everyone else was going to do it. Yeah, and if if my other thought was is that if that does become a breakaway, mm-hmm. then I will do one really hard effort and not bring anyone. Yeah, or yeah. my my choice was let me do a hard effort and bring the whole field. But every time you kind of wait like four seconds, mm-hmm. and that's enough where someone panics. Yeah, yeah. And then they come around you, and then you save, a, you know, twenty percent energy. Yeah, that happens over and over in the race, and it's you can save a lot of fitness and totally. Yeah, and easier.
0: That front third thing is a common thing that people say, and it's a good way usually to ensure a greater level of safety. It's also a good thing usually to ensure a better chance of staying on, but it certainly isn't like a, a, a fail safe. You know, being in the front third doesn't mean that everything is going to go perfectly well. Things still happen. Yeah. Um, this is a question kind of along these lines from Anthony, kind of deals with the categories so we can get into that. He says... I'm a, for a 49 year old guy who is fairly new to racing. I'm getting whooped by kids, half my age in cat five and the elite cat five. Cause elite means young. It doesn't mean fast. It's kind of weird. Elite means oh, well, junior means really young, then elite. And then after elite it goes to masters and for masters, it goes to senior in terms of age groups and they can have cat five through one technically for all of those. Except for juniors. I'm, I think, I don't think they can go too high. So it says, would I be better off in 50 year old masters or just suck it up and get better? I think that if you're a new racer and you can handle it, I say that race with the elites and the masters within that category.
1: Yeah, both races.
0: It'll give you a really good experience. And you'll see that a lot of the time you'll get like polarized experience. You'll get the really eager, kind of reckless young kids. uh, And then hopefully, you know, you'll get a more calm masters group. It might be vice versa. You know, you never know. But racing, I've found with different groups and different scenarios, is hugely valuable. Because if you race amongst the same group of people all the time, it, you don't really develop a new skill set.
1: That's a good point. It's, it's a different way of racing. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is you have to be okay with it, especially being a cat five in, in elite level that there's always someone coming through there who should not be there. <laughs> totally. Right? Like yeah. there's, there, and it's going to happen almost every race where yeah. there is some, um, we, we had it here where you, uh. Trevor, uh, DeRusse used to work for us. He yeah. was at like 5.2 Watts per kilo professional mountain bike racer, extremely fast. Right. And he's like, Oh, I'm going to go do a crit. Yeah. Right. So 5.2 Watts per kilo cat five crit. Yeah. He should win. Yeah. He didn't even win because right? there were yeah. other people who were, uh, should have been even higher. Yeah. And it happens, uh, pro triathletes go over there pretty much. some there's usually two things. One, there's a junior who is exceptional yes, and they just don't have enough starts in yep. cat five to move up. And they come through and they blow everybody away. Yeah. Or there's someone from uh, high level cross, yeah, know, mountain bike, track, something like that, uh, triathlete, and they come over and uh,
0: crazy fast. Yeah,
1: and just beat everybody. So you have or to. Or somebody
0: that's been waiting for years and training for years, yeah. type of a thing, and then they're just starting racing.
1: Greg Romali, who's one uh, wildflower professional triathlete, he was like doing this 180, and I think his FTP was around 100 or 400. Wow. And uh, he, I remember him doing cat five races and he said that he did the cat five race. It was a road race. He went off the front. He passed the, like the four group and the three group
0: <laughs> like on <laughs> the road, cow. just
1: like going. Cause he, he just went for 400 Watts the whole yeah, time. Yeah. And uh, it's much faster than the other races. So just, just know that even if you are super fit, five could be harder to win than totally. like a four or a three because of people that are really good, they'll get up to the one, two P one, two race very quickly.
0: Yep. Exactly. You kind of have like a polarized set of riders. I want to take a quick moment and talk about the categories really quick yeah. and for upgrades, upgrades are something that you have to keep track of yourself. USAC doesn't, it depends on the amount of racers in the field and it depends on your finish within that. It also depends on the format of the race. So certain like uh, stage races, you can double up on points in some cases, but you don't get points for time trials. For example, it's kind of confusing, but we've put up a guide on, on uh, category upgrades. You can look up on blog.trainerroad.com and it lives up there. Um, it should be a helpful resource. It breaks down the points you need to move up from one category to the other. And the points you get from different race scenarios. Um, I even regularly look back on that. I wrote it and I still can't keep it straight. So <laughs> I actually reflect on that pretty regularly. Yeah. So, uh, in terms of where you should start though. If you're a really fast racer and some other form, and then you go to road racing, you still have to start out in cat five. Everybody has to start there and you have to get 10 starts. And that's just what it is. If you're a really fast racer on the road and you're getting into mountain biking, just start out in cat three. It's fine. Uh, there's, you know, a sandbagger is only a sandbagger when they have raced enough to know that they are definitely too good for it. And they continue to race because they're looking to just get trophies or something. But don't worry about that. Like uh, people that worry about sandbagging usually are the ones that never sandbag anyway. It's the people that, you know, (laughs) aren't worried about it that you you have to worry about. So just drop down and race there and race until you're bumped up or until you feel like it's very apparent that you need to move up.
1: And how Chad says, like, uh, it's not always about moving up as quickly as you can Mm -hmm. because you want to be able to – you can get out of the fives after 10, for sure. Yeah. But after that, you want to be able to like be a player in the race and try different yeah. strategies rather than just try to hang on. Yeah. Um, there could be some – you could get lucky in some races where you are the fittest person and there's no strategy and you just go off. Yeah, But in the races where it is, people like your level. Yeah. Uh, it's better to have the experience before you get into the really fast, fast races where you're just hanging on for dear life.
0: And if you're in cat five on the road, and you just need to, you know, it's last place or first, it's the same. You just get one point then. And let's say you are really fast. You're faster than everybody. Then that's a good opportunity for you to not exploit that necessarily. And by just rolling away from everybody and every race try to employ a totally different tactic. And you know, maybe if you're the breakaway type and you're a triathlete, maybe that's never thought about sprinting in the wind. Well, maybe sit in and if you are indeed faster, try to go for the sprint, mix it up.
1: I think it goes. Even for any category racing, is just have a different strategy yeah. to learn more. Um, For instance, when you won, we we did two races together, the three four five and the four five. You won both. Yeah, we went in the breakaway in both. Yeah, and it was it was hard. Like mm-hmm. we were working hard the whole time. Yeah, yeah. The next race, I think I got third or something in a, in a sprint finish, but I stayed in the whole entire time. Yeah, the difference in. The <laughs> energy that you have to put out yeah. is amazing, and I think yeah. my placement was the same in both. Like, yeah. just like, but it's there's like the hard way and the easy way. Totally. Um,
0: yeah, mix it up.
1: I got a question. Let's do it's it. It's kind of a a new person question. Byron says, "Wanting to know your thoughts on cycling on the keto diet. I'm a bigger guy, need to lose some weight. Six seven, two sixty five. Looking for advice. Hmm. I like entering metric metric century rides, but while on keto, I have a hard time completing thirty miles." really weak. Any sense. help would be greatly appreciated. So I I am totally in the camp of keto is not good for endurance endurance sports yeah. unless you're doing uh ram race across America. Yeah. 100 mile running races things where um the the advantage of burning mostly fat at a very low effort level yeah. helps. When Byron is so Byron if you're having problems at 30 miles you're probably going too hard.
0: Yep. So he's, he's, he's getting out. He's becoming, he should be more dependent on glycogen usually at that point. Right. Because that's where the effort level is going. Yeah. And if you don't have that on board or you don't have as much of it, then it's going to be really tough to finish those things. Yeah. So it's some athlete, And it's probably a good disclaimer for us to say that like some athletes are able to, you know, run on a, on a keto diet and mm -hmm. they're able to do, you know, perform very well. But for the majority of people, it's extremely tough.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, I don't think there's any real high level. Someone, please type it in. There's probably yeah. one, yeah. but uh, if you look at the Tour de France right now, I don't think a single one of those yeah, riders I do- I are in it. ketosis <laughs> while they're doing that. Yeah. Um, and they're doing lots and lots of miles every day, and even yeah. them carbs help. So yeah. Byron, uh, myself, I've lost weight cycling, and it's hard. Uh, it's it really, I think you just you have to be okay being hungry. Yeah, um, yeah. It's like and, some,
0: and you fuel your workouts, and then you're okay being hungry elsewhere. Yeah, that's and that's, kind of that's how I the key is it.
1: if you don't fuel your workouts with carbs, uh, it can be the workouts can be extremely hard. Yeah. And what I like to do is uh, do a high, when I was losing weight, do a, like a, a higher carb meal. Mm-hmm. Uh, my favorite sweet potatoes with beans on it, like black beans, mm-hmm. about three to four hours before your ride. Um, if you can't do that because you're working out in the morning, uh, I like Ezekiel um, bread which is like a whole grain bread and then I put honey on it and I do two to four slices depending on the severity of the workout mm-hmm. and that's a little bit quicker. And I would do that within uh, an hour of working out, not longer pretty quickly though. Yeah. yeah. I, so the Ezekiel bread's going to go a little bit slower because it's fiber in it, but the honey does come in quick. Yeah. So Byron, um, it's just a process. It's about a daily caloric deficit. Yeah. And if you can fuel your workouts, it'll be easier to hit a larger uh, daily cal- caloric deficit because, um, instead of, you know, bailing that halfway through your workout you can do the whole workout maybe that's 500 calories. Yeah. And, uh, I ha- also had a lot of, it helped me a lot to be able to weigh my food and even just for a week, if you can do it yeah. to, to realize like some of these portions, like you eat some nuts and you weigh the amount of nuts you have and you're like, Holy smokes, that is, 300 calories right there. Yeah. That's most yeah. of my ride. It's um and, and really just going to bed early. It's like you have to be – somebody told me, it's like you should write a book about – and 100 other things you don't want to hear. Yeah. But all of like nutrition is about how do I lose weight without feeling uncomfortable? Yeah. And there's so much – or not nutrition but That's weight a loss. Di- yeah,
0: dieting exactly. is all about
1: that. It's about not uh-huh. feeling uncomfortable. But if you're okay feeling uncomfortable – and going to bed yeah. uh, hungry, you just have to you have to be aware of that because it can come out as anger towards like your partner, or <laughs> totally. your kids, yeah. or your coworkers. Hanger. Exactly, yeah, Anger's <laughs> real, and it's totally yeah. real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So that's that's my advice: is read the endurance diet. I think eating lots of fruits and vegetables, uh, eat carbs before your rides if you're trying to lose weight, yeah. and then uh, go to bed hungry, which yeah. is I. I swear, if you go to bed hungry, yeah, it really helps.
0: Yeah. Uh, Daniel Hall, he says, I race him the, the local four or five races. Aaron is, and he says that I, I am constantly in the breakaway till the finish, but I can't get the final sprint. How have you practiced your sprints? Once again, uh, so it very well could be sprinting technique. And a lot of things that people forget is, you know, they're being in the proper gear in a sprint, uh, you, that proper gear will change depending on conditions and rider, but in most cases, you know, you, you aren't going to be lugging a really, really heavy gear, but you also certainly won't want to be spinning super quick. If you look at the you know cadence of the top sprinters and they're coming across the line, they're many times over a hundred RPM. Uh, and a lot of us feel like we're making a productive sprint if it's like a really hard gear to push, but that doesn't mean that you're actually developing or generating a lot of speed. So you want gearing in the proper way. And then you also want to make sure that you're not standing up in the wind. A lot of people, when they push on the pedals, they just become a sail. Yep. And that's, so you want to be able to sprint with power, but do so when you're still, you're folded at that, at at the hips, right? So that's a kind of, that's the, the part two, but part three. And I think the biggest thing is making sure that you are following wheels properly. And that is, I guess, efficiency and drafting, but then also that's when you launch your sprint.
1: Yeah. So how do you decide when to launch your sprint?
0: So I know that for me, I have a really short, hard kick, right. And uh, but I also have something that's usually pretty good at like 500 meters to go, something like that. I can go pretty well. Mm-hmm. So if it's 500 meters to go. And I'm weighing the situation. I feel like I feel like I can out sprint these guys I'll go then, but more often than not, I'll try to leave it as long as I can to before the line. Cause I know that's what I'm good at. Now I figured that out through racing, but also just through sprint practice with other people. Uh, it's really a good thing to do is to go out and do a sprint workout. And this is actually Chad has brought this up to me before. And, uh, well, actually he was, I think the first one that told me about this. And I used to go out and do them pretty regularly. Don't do them quite as much, uh, these days, just cause I don't really use that skill quite as much, but. Uh, with sprinting, I would do sprints where it's like, I would be in a really, really heavy gear, and I would do a sprint like that. And then I would do one where I'm in a really, really light gear, and I'm spinning like crazy. And then, and I would be sprinting next to somebody the whole time. So I kind of like explore the whole spectrum of, of ways I could sprint. And then I would try to, then at the end, I would really hone in on where the ideal is and I would do repeats and I would really try to be as efficient as possible while getting out the most power. Uh, it's really effective. Another thing that I've found to be effective for sprinting too, is like, let's say your peak sprint is like 1300 Watts, right. Is to make sure that you can be aerodynamic, but sprint at, a, you know, a thousand Watts or 1100 Watts and repeat that a number of different times. Cause so that can really help. The final thing I'd say on this is that, uh, if you are sprinting next to people and you're just running out of gas, but you feel like you should be beating them, it's probably comes down to how you can, how you use that energy earlier on in the race. Yeah. Be efficient. And
1: how... A lot of people concentrate on peak power. Mm -hmm. Like you do sprints, you're like, oh, my peak power. Yeah. But I think it's more about duration of peak power. Totally. Right? Like, and you can look, you can use uh, performance analytics. We have a PR chart to see where your drop-off is. So uh, Mm -hmm. for instance, if you're a great 10-second sprinter, you're going to be going at a very different uh, attack than if you are a 30 second sprinter, which some people can sprint 30 seconds and do a great job. And that catches a lot of people out too.
0: And for me, in terms of what I'm best at, not in relation to other people, but in terms of what I'm best at, it's like a five second sprint. That's what I'm really best at.
1: So when I'm on someone's wheel in a Mm -hmm. sprint and it's, uh, it's almost like, I feel like I do better if I don't, if I'm not so concerned about winning, yeah. Because you can like hang in there more. Yeah. But if I'm on someone's wheel, I want to be on there until one either people are passing us mm-hmm. or I feel that person slow down a little bit. Yeah. And uh th- as soon as I feel like it's slowing down, that is when I will launch or if you see people start to come by you, mm-hmm. then I'll try to hop mm-hmm. under their wheel or launch. But yeah. other than that, I'll kind of sit on that wheel and be patient until you get Or, I mean, the finish line's coming up, right? Then you have to do it. Yeah. But I think a lot of people, especially new racers, you sit on there, but you don't sit on there for very long. You get very, very excited and you just want to go and launch your sprint as as early as possible when you could be saving a lot of, uh, energy.
0: Yep. Yeah. Save it. It's always better. Um, I want to get into some practical stuff really quick. I got, I got a good one from Zach. Yeah. Okay, cool. Then we'll get into some practical stuff about race day registration, all that stuff. So,
1: well, I'm going to say I'm doing my first crit on Sunday morning, uh, Mm. uh, training crit, just like Nate's discussing, what should I do the morning of? I.e., when should I get there? What should I bring? Oh, this is perfect. I know. Should I bike over to the crit to warm up, et cetera?
0: Yeah. Um, so segue. I'm going to, yeah, very good. Segue. Thank you, Zach. I'm going to start even before then okay. about picking races that have an, and how to find a race. Oh, okay. Uh, so one thing that can be really helpful. Number one, if you find that group, you should, uh, you know, a local group, they probably will be able to fill you in on what type of races are going on. That's really helpful. But then number two, you can use a, a system like bike reg, bike reg. You can actually say like, find races near me that are road races. and it will actually Show you all the races within your region that kind of fall within the criteria you define, which can be really helpful. Some of these have pre-reg, some of them have day of pre-reg or pre-registration almost always guarantees a lower cost. I would recommend doing it. Um, and then just check the refund uh, policy on this because sometimes they can be a little strict on that. Um, and then you'll have to check also if the race has USAC sanctioning. You can get a single day license, or you can get an annual license. I would honestly recommend, if you can, just getting an annual license, because then you'll have one less barrier to racing again, if that's your goal. Yeah. And those little barriers often cause things to be a little, you know, yeah. they, they add up and they get pretty big.
1: I should mention too, this is US. USA stuff. Yes. I'm not sure how it works in England or Australia. Totally.
0: Yeah. In different sanctioning bodies, I'm sure it's quite different. And then we've already talked about categories and all that stuff. Uh, From there though, talking about the morning of, uh, we've, talked plenty of times about like morning of nutrition. In fact, you can go back to our recent 40 KTT, uh, wrap up that we did where we talk about our morning nutrition for that race. Uh, and Nate obviously just talked about a lot of the nutrition he will be taking in during the race, all that stuff. But one thing I, I get there, I always get to a race an hour early at the very latest. Like that would be like the latest that I show up hour would be panic for me. Exactly. Like I want to be there a little earlier than that. If it's a long race, you know, I'm not I'm not really focused on getting a warm up, but that really depends on how the race starts. If the race is going to start hard, then I want to be warmed up for it. Uh, The other thing that you want to do is you want to get to registration first thing when you get there that morning, instead of like warming up or doing something else, then going to registration and picking up your number, go get your number first thing, because you never know if there's a problem that you'll have to work out. And then once you get up there, if it's like right before the race, then it's too late.
1: And the lines too. So it's lines could be longer. Mm -hmm. So what Zach says about, Let's talk about um so when should I get there? I think at least an hour early. Yeah. Because of yeah. all the things that could go wrong. Totally. And it makes it stressful. Mm-hmm. What should I bring? Um I have a a bag that's dedicated to mobile uh bike repair. Yeah. So it has smart. all my tools in it. I have got the feedback sports. They make like a little zipped up really nice. It's handy. Yeah, really nice bike toolkit. And that fits into a uh What's the rainbag? Psycon. Cy- uh, Cycon, Yeah, we have is that Cycon what it's called? Psycon. Yeah. I believe
0: they are. Yeah. And uh, so I have
1: chain. that in there, and then I have things like an extra chain, um, a, a little. Actually, have a little teeny hand pump in there in mm-hmm. case I forget a hand, like a, a pump. It's smart. Um, I have chain links. Uh, sometimes I put extra pedals in there. Yeah. Um, if you you could put extra tubes, just like everything where you can be self sufficient. I put all my lube in there, and then by not using it at home. Um, everything's always kind of in that exact bag. Yep. Um, I've got my glue in there. I've got a little like, um, camp towel because sometimes you need to change with
0: the towel. You need to bring towels. Yeah. I bring baby wipes to every race. baby wipes
1: are in my bag.
0: Yeah. I mean, when I put topical edge stuff on, you really need them. But even when you don't do that or you don't put embrication on you still at the end of the race, you're probably going to be dirty and it's nice to do some sort of a cleanup. Uh I do a pre race check on my bike too, on critical bolts. And what I define as critical <laughs> bolts. This um, one's painful. <laughs> yeah. Jonathan. Critical bolts are stem-, stem bolts. Really? Yeah. Let yeah. me take notes. Yeah, it's a good idea. <laughs> uh stem bolts, I check my cranks, I check my pedals, I check my skewers, and then I check my saddle. It's really not a lot though, if you think about it. It's just making sure you take that Allen key and put it in there and just make sure it's tight. It's, it's pretty funny simple stuff.
1: I do none of those things, but I do check my tires. That's a that's a smart one so to go Um especially with a fast crit or something. Yeah. I look at my tire and one, I, if I have a glove on, I do one thing all the way around where I like kind of clean the tire. Yeah. And then um, and then I look for it because I want to look for little rocks or thorns that yeah. are already stuck in your tire.
0: Because it might come out mid-race.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Um, And just tire inspection in general. If you see you have a big cut, this would actually be better not to do on race day morning, but if you have a big cut, maybe you don't want to use that in the, yeah, you in the really – 40 mile per hour turn.
0: Yeah. Uh, another thing, as far as chain, I see a lot of people like lubing their chain morning of a race. If you can do that. After the race, like what I mean by that is you just always want to be a step ahead because if you put chain lube on and it's already really wet and it's on there, then chances are, it's just going to collect a bunch of grime. It's going to add a lot of resistance, mechanical resistance, but then also it's just going to make it noisy and dirty. And then it starts a vicious cycle. So after you clean your bike after the race, that's when you want to lube it instead of lubing the morning of
1: join the wax chain revolution. And we will eventually do a video on this, but having a wax chain is amazing. Um, I can't say enough of it, (laughs) it's. It's very, very nice.
0: The other thing that I would say too, when you get there on the pre-race checklist, so to say, like things that you want to do when you, when you get there is go find where the start line is. I know that seems like a really simple thing, but in many cases, you'll show up to a race and you'll see a lot of racers moving around, but you won't see how to get to the start line. Like, for example, I'm thinking of sea otter classic. Like that one is one where there's a huge village, right? It's like a big expo area. And then there's this car racetrack all around you. And it's actually really hard to access and you don't know where you might start. So a lot of people actually show up really late to those races and even miss the start because it's kind of complex to get there. So just make sure in triathlon is another good example. It might have a village and you know, all those things. So you want to make sure that you get there and you have that race area fully figured out.
1: If it's a, um, important race for you. And even a cat five can be important just to get the finish. Mm-hmm. Actually it probably makes more sense in a cat five is, uh, if they have an area where you can leave extra wheels. So if you do get a flat, you can jump right back in, um, I have not done that in the past and just stole one from Chad, but I mean, it's, (laughs) it's, it's nice to be able to do that where sometimes you travel and you like, if you drive two hours to start a race and you get a flat in the first lap, like,
0: ah, what a bummer.
1: Exactly. What a bummer. Yeah. Um,
0: what, what tools or spares do you carry with you in a typical road race?
1: In a road race, I do a full, like it depends on the race. Um,
0: I carry CO2, one CO2 for a road race, just the bigger ones, the 20 gram, I think it is. And then I carry a nozzle and then I'll carry a tire lever lever and I'll carry a multi-tool and that's it. Um, if it's a criterium, I won't carry any of that. Yeah. I'm doing short laps, but if it's a road race, I, that's what I carry.
1: A road race, I'll carry that unless it's hilly and I know there's a follow car because yeah. if there's a car that I can jump in, I don't want the extra weight. Um, I'm a bad enough, like relative to other people. Uh I'm bigger, so climbs will slow me down, and even the extra pound of the saddle bag. Yeah, it's probably more mental. I've even like taken off bottle cages. Yeah, ever
0: done that for a race? Yeah, totally have. Yeah, yeah, yeah for TTS, especially the uphill TTS. Yeah, yeah,
1: and like, for uh, aerodynamics. That's yeah. what I'm mostly concerned about for exactly. these races. Yeah, for warm
0: up. Mm-hmm.
1: So, Zach, I think warming up in a crit, if you can, on course is is much better than a trainer because um especially if it's your first crit taking line choices oh yeah and and getting a feel for the road
0: yep yeah i think that uh, if you can put in reps like that it's a much better idea to warm up that way uh for mountain bike races i think that if you should know the course so you should pre-ride that but a lot of the time it's really hard to get in a structured warm up on a mountain bike course so i suggest a hybrid approach ideally what i can do if it's like a xco which is cross country olympic which i'm going to get into that really quick the differences of mountain bike races but If it's that sort of one where you have shorter loops, I'll go and do one lap and then come back and get on the trainer and do my warm up there and then go up to the line and go. And then after my warm up, I always want to leave, you know, somewhere around ten minutes. And it's it's actually that a lot of people think that you need to keep your legs moving until like the gun goes off. And that's really there's no science to really back that up. Uh, that's really I think just dogma. You know, it's something that people have believed for a long time. You can stop for fifteen, heck, even like twenty minutes before, and then you know do nothing, and you'll still you know you're, you still like reap the benefits of your warm up. Yeah, there's so
1: there's conflicting science on warm ups, and I wish Chad was here because he could set me straight. So I'm going to say yeah. a bunch of stuff and if I'm wrong, <laughs> please post about it. But from what I remember is there's two parts of warming up. There's one of like warming up your um, aerobic system, which is, I'm, I'm not sure exactly if warming up is the correct scientific term, Yeah. but that does help you put on more power. But the other side of that is if your body actually gets too hot, mm-hmm. that can counteract the benefits and you can actually perform worse. Yeah. And you see in the tour, People warm up for the TT. They have ice vests on and fans. I've used yeah. an ice vest before, and I've actually found it hotter.
0: Yeah, because you can't breathe. You can't breathe. You got to
1: have enough airflow. Because um, and maybe they've changed. It was, it's been four or five years since I've done yeah. it. Um, but they, you kind of have to balance those two. Mm-hmm. So when you do warm up on a trainer, um, you probably don't have a fan. Make sure you're in the shade. And if it's a hundred degree, hundred degree day out it's probably not the best idea to warm up and a trainer in the sun, yeah. and just get super, super, duper hot.
0: Right, yeah, you might be doing yourself a you know- some A disservice, sort of dexter- yeah. Yeah, exactly.
1: <clears throat> the other thing to think about is, mm-hmm. um, and I learned this from the Cliff Bar team camp, everyone yelled at me for tire pressure. Like- <laughs> They um, run really low pressure. They run really low pressure Partially
0: and- because they're on NVs, which have a wider internal width. They're on Maxxis tires also, which are known for being, you know, I guess a solid tire, and you can run lower pressure, and you get good characteristics. So it varies tire to rim. But it does.
1: And in the the when I first started, everyone was like 120 psi, as hard as you can get yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And so the, the rule of thumb is, as your rim is wider and your tire is bigger, you mm-hmm. can run less pressure. And then if you have tubeless, you can even go lower. Yes. But I think too many people inflate it to the psi on their tube, the max psi. Yes. Let's start with that. And during your warm up, Zach. This is when you can experiment with tire pressure a little bit. Uh, you can go do your laps, take turns at speed, totally. and then come back, and let's take out 10 PSI and see how that feels. See
0: how it feels. That's the important thing is see if there is a change in feel.
1: Exactly. And when um, I rode with them, I think I was at like 95, and I thought 95 was low. Mm-hmm. And everyone's like, try 80, try 80. I went down to 80, and there was this magic, like point where the road smoothed out everything felt it actually felt safer and faster to be at 80 than to be at 95 which yeah. sounds weird yeah um and those were on s work turbo, turbo 26s on roval clx 50s I yeah think, 50s. so yep. pretty wide setup pretty too. wide setup yep. yep and it was tubeless yeah and i'm uh a 185 when that happened. so yeah uh just that's a rule it's of a thumb setup. Yeah, i know
0: you, they were running somewhere around 75 for that crit that we did recently on our YouTube channel. So exactly, pretty low, pretty and They're low. big guy. So like, you know, nearly 200 pounds, so exactly. I should say Pete is so, um, another, th- so when I asked this question on, you know, things that you wish you would have known, a lot of people kind of like they passive aggressively pointed out they was something they wish that somebody else would have known okay. <laughs> during the race. And a lot of it had to do with, I wish somebody would have known to hold their line or something like that. Yeah. Uh, when we talk about holding a line in a race, we're really just talking about no sudden movements. That's really it, right? It's it's if somebody yells at you or comes around you or does something crazy, it doesn't mean that you have to shift your line over. Uh, you can just stay in place and just carry on smoothly. It's uh, it's a common thing that you see like uh, a lot of, you know, if you move to try to solve a problem, chances are you're causing another problem when you're riding in a group. Yeah. Uh, if you stay in place, then more problems can be solved around you. Yeah safer way to do it.
1: Another one that I think of that is if you're, if the whole, if the whole group, the Peloton's moving at a certain like radius, like, the of mm-hmm. the, of the turn, you have to be, you have to do that same radius. And totally. it, as a new racer, it can feel extremely scary because yeah, this could be tighter. So <laughs> yeah. you feel like you want to be at a wider angle mm-hmm. and you start to come out and then, while someone else is leaning their bike over, you're coming into them. Yeah. And that's where they will yell at you yeah, like, exactly. and say, n- near death, yeah. um, that you're going to, you know, you're trying to kill me. Yeah, yeah. So, it's you have to be confident again, lower pressure, confident in your tires, stick your outside foot down as hard as you can. That's where the weight goes. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then your inside handlebar actually is going to have way more weight than you yep. are comfortable with. And yep. that's another thing that's really helped me with my handling is if you can do both of those things, you can take turns way, way faster oh, yeah. than you would. But the opposite side, I've also done this actually mountain biking, where you almost feel like you're on a berm, but you're not. Yeah. And if you're on a flat turn and you don't weight your outside pedal,
0: yeah. You're down.
1: It slides right out. <laughs> yeah, right? exactly. And then, uh, and then bad things happen. So yeah, that's when they say hold your line. Do that.
0: That's what they're talking about. Yeah. Uh, another thing that uh, people, uh, somebody said was, I wish I would have known that I didn't. There, I wish I would have known I had to ride that close to somebody's rear wheel, and it's uh, something a lot of people worry about tapping wheels or hitting the wheel in front of them. Uh, in many cases, that's a worry that's really not warranted. Like you'll find that, you know, you'll smooth, you'll smoothly ride together and This is, we're going to get into kind of like another myth that I kind of want to dispel with this, but you ride very close to that wheel and in times when they hit the brakes, you don't necessarily have to hit your brakes as much as drift over to the side and catch a little bit of wind. It'll slow you down just because if you think about it, if the first person taps their brakes, you're going to tap your brakes a little more severely. And then that cascades to the rest of the group. But if you can keep it smooth, it's even better. So a lot of the time, you know, when you're following a person, you're looking over the shoulders like that you're within an inch, you're within inches of that tire. Uh, but you're able to do so because you're smooth and confident with it, I guess. And it takes time to get you. Yeah.
1: And you don't always have to be that way. No. Yeah. You so can
0: drift a little further back.
1: If you watch the youtube.com slash trainer road, this is the last video you did with Pete mm-hmm. and Jacob, um, at cliff bar racing, they actually leave a lot of times a much bigger gap mm-hmm. than you would think. And they always leave a bigger gap coming into turns. Yep. Cause that's where if they, if someone else does hit their brakes, you don't want to hit your brakes in a turn. That's
0: when they're in a group, we should say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um,
1: mm-hmm. So it's – you don't have to have that a couple inches the whole time and yeah. be there. Uh, it's The reason you're doing this is because of aerodynamics, right? Yeah, yeah. So if you can be in your drops, I think you can be a little bit farther back than if you're sitting up really high.
0: yeah. That's a good point that you're not trying to maintain three inches, like you're, whatever it might be. You aren't trying to maintain a number. And if you're doing that, you're looking down at the wheel anyway, in front of you, which will make you really kind of, you know, yeah. sketchy, uh, what you're really trying to do is just stay within that draft and you can hear and feel that draft and the closer you get, you'll feel like, oh, this is more efficient. This is more efficient.
1: That's another new thing that, uh, pro triathlete, Kat Baker told me is I was asking her questions. This is like 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. How how do you know where to be in in the draft? And you feel it. And Mm -hmm. if you're, once you get up to, you know, over 20 inches, you can totally feel a difference. Huge difference. And it's not always for new racers. It's not always directly behind the person. Yeah. Right. And it can, and it shifts as the, as the, uh, the road shifts. Yeah, it's the always direction changing. of
0: the road and the wind as that changes, you know, you're going to shift around and you're just trying to find the best spot to hide from the wind basically. And in some cases that will put you in a situation where you're slightly overlapped on wheels. Yep. And that's one thing that you know a lot of people say never overlap wheels, but the fact is it happens all the time. Uh, sure, it's a vulnerable position to be in because if you have your front wheel by somebody's back wheel to the side, if that person moves to the side, you're completely, you know, at their mercy.
1: This just happened in our last crit mm-hmm. is on the back side of our crit course, uh, we were echeloned, which means you're kind of like staggered across the road.
0: yeah, in a diagonal line.
1: and there is a famous like uh, manhole cover back there. <laughs> and someone two parts up on the echelon they swerved the guy in front mm-hmm. of me swerved and his uh skewer actually went into my spokes oh geez. it was ding terrifying. ding 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 yeah and the way that we saved it is neither of us panicked mm-hmm. it was a slow movement out yeah. rather than a like a um like a if if I would have swerved out I would have gone down Yep. right and you just kind of have to chill That's out true. for a second yep. yep um and I don't know if I I mean I was that close because I wanted the draft yeah and if when someone when someone goes quick like that and, and the person who did it to me, they had to do it because the person in front of them did it. Yeah. Um, it's just, a
0: you just have to stay smooth. Yeah, exactly. You focus on that. Another question that we got was how long should I be on the front or how long should I expect somebody to be pulling in front of me? And that's another thing that varies constantly, but the biggest thing you can do is if you're in in a group and you're wondering that very thing, then pull off. If you're wondering how long I should be up here, then pull right off then and see what the feedback is, right. And see what the group does. And then, you know, go on from there. You'll see that in. Even the team time trial that was recently in the tour de France, there were teams taking very different strategies in terms of how long the polls were, were, you know, it depends on the, the ability of the riders and their form on the day, plenty of different things, the course. So it really changes, uh, and there is no hard set, fast rule in terms of how long a pole should be. So if anybody says there is one, then, you know, that's just for one specific scenario. Uh, one other thing that we got was racing in the rain. How do I race in the rain? Pete and I were actually talking about this and we were talking about,
1: I know the answer. You don't,
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. Yeah. Uh, we were talking about tires and having siping on tires are basically like uh, relief or yeah. texture on that tire. Um, sipes are a form of that, but, and, and how that could shed water. You know, you really don't have hydroplaning being a problem on a road bike pretty much ever. Uh, it's a very small, tiny contact patch that you're dealing with in most cases. And it's on a, usually a porous enough surface, like a road that you don't get flotation, like you get with a broader tire from a motorcycle or a car. Mm. That's where you really get the hydroplaning. Uh, but what water does, what rain does is it in many cases just makes like a, if there's any sort of oil in the street or anything else like that, the water combines with that and it kind of like reactivates, so to speak, and it makes it a little bit more slick. Yeah. Uh, you know, wet pavement, if it is, you know, if you're not having any oil or anything like that, it's actually not necessarily a whole lot more slippery. Uh, you'd be surprised at the speed that you can carry through and the control you can have. It's just really when you're going through rain, you can run a tur- perfectly slick tire. You don't need to put on rain tires. Uh, you can run a perfectly slick tire. You just really have to make sure that you are doing the proper things with your technique and then doing everything that you can to keep your weight centered over those tires. And especially over the front end, uh, you'll see like a lot of the top crit racers, and they're going through a turn, their chest is really low to that bar, like really low. And that's because that's not because they're trying to be arrow necessarily as much as they're trying to make sure that they have as much weight on that front tire as possible to make sure that it has a lot of traction. Yep. So in the rain, not a lot changes, uh, feel out the turns beforehand, but really the only thing that should change is you should double down on your commitment to proper technique. And then you'll notice that in a rain and rain race, a lot of the time riders will ride a little bit more spaced out a little more cautiously, just make sure that you aren't riding stiff. Cause that's probably your worst enemy.
1: The one thing to be careful about in rain are painted lines. Yes, it's, they get very slick. <laughs> if you're, uh, so if you're in a turn and you're going to go over a painted line, mm-hmm. you have to really think about it. Cause as soon as you hit that paint, you'll, people will go down and you see this too. in in professional really? racing all the time, Oh yeah, cause they have access to the entire road mm-hmm. and that center line will be painted and they'll go across it. And then as soon as they hit the paint, they'll go down. Yeah. So be careful.
0: Yeah. Uh, another question that we got earlier this week from the Facebook podcast group is if it's my first race, should I just sit in? I don't think so. I think that you should experiment with things and find out how races unfold to different parts, right?
1: Depends on, uh, the type of racing, yeah. because in a road race, like, you'll start at the beginning and yeah. it will feel easy yeah. normally, depending on the course and all yeah. that kind of stuff. But you're like, this is so easy. I'm going to attack and you yeah. attack. And when it's easy for you, it's probably easy for everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> then you get very tired. And then the first hill comes and you get dropped off.
0: <laughs> exactly.
1: Uh, yeah. So it's,
0: you don't want to get over exuberant or jump in over your head
1: and wait, wait, half the, half the length of the race. Yeah. Like if it's a 30 minute race, wait 15 minutes before you attack.
0: Yeah. And I guess this ties into like seeing getting dropped as a failure and it's really not, especially when you're racing early on. In fact, it might even be like a, a not direct you know, does consequence that you're going after? But if your goal with a lot of races, they're lower priority. So your goal should be to experiment and to try things out. And that will likely in many cases result in getting dropped, but that might be very okay. And it's okay to get dropped. That's all part of the process. Like if you get dropped for the first season of racing, that's also not uncommon. Like for you to get dropped in every race, that's normal. Uh, You know, you can work your way. You'll, you'll get more experience. You'll get better as time goes on.
1: Uh, Lars asks, I'm a cat for. Uh, racer, and I'm at 4.3 watts per kilo. Mm. I'm thinking to do my upgrade to Cat 3. Is it worth waiting or to stay in Cat 4 and keep learning? Mm. And my response to this, this kind of builds on what Chad says, Once you're at 4.3 watts per kilo, um, especially if you're a bigger rider, if you get to the point where you're dominating races and you don't have to use strategy, right? Like your, Your fitness is so high that strategy doesn't take in to account anymore then yeah. upgrade because then you're not really learning anything exactly you're actually probably doing a detriment yeah. a disservice to yourself totally because you could like well i can just go off the front with five laps to go and solo every time and win yeah and that's not how it's going to be
0: it's not making you a better bike racer
1: exactly yeah. um but if you're at that category and you still need to use skills and tactics mm-hmm. and play smart mm-hmm. maybe it's not time to upgrade yet yeah until you're forced to
0: Uh, another one from Anna, she says any tips she's on YouTube. She says any tips for racing in a small field as a beginner racing as a woman where I live, the fields are smaller and some races have all levels of women racing together. Yeah. When it's a small group like that, you basically just have to look at things like there's less room to hide Yeah, and chances are, you're going to see more cards put out on the table by these people earlier on in the race. Uh, I've actually seen if it's a less like a lower consequence race, I've seen actually groups of people come together and say. All right, guys, how do you want to race this one? And they kind of like form a strategy and then they see how it works out. Like they kind of like set ground rules almost in the sense that like, well, I really like to work on my sprint or I'd really like to, you know, try to get away. And they say, okay, well, we'd like to chase a rider. So we'll let you get up the road sort of a thing. You can even work something like that out. But when you're riding with a small group, it really comes down to think of it like a breakaway and breakaway tactics. And it's a great opportunity for you to kind of race in that environment.
1: It's also nice in a small group to, uh, if you have a friend. And even they're mm-hmm. on the same team to create a team because in a small group, let's say you have six riders mm-hmm. and you have a friend, you you suddenly have a huge advantage um, totally. over if you have a hundred riders and you have a friend, it's not as, yeah. it's not <laughs> as big of an advantage. Yeah. And when you do team tactics in those small groups, mm-hmm. like John said, it, it can be so much more fun. Um, oh yeah. And one, John and I did it. Uh, I attacked. Um, and then I got caught and then he immediately attacked Mm -hmm. as simple as that. Yeah. You can
0: even like set that rule. Like basically if you're a small group, you can say, okay, how about we counter attack on top of every attack? Yep. And then it's just, it's somebody's job every time that you catch, you know, that you counter again, that would be a great way to get in a killer workout too.
1: Exactly. And it's, uh, um, do that as soon as it, as soon as it gets brought back, do that next attack or as soon as you feel it slow
0: down from being brought back. Yeah. Um, another question that, uh, some came in earlier was about the different types of mountain bike races that exist, like which ones should they do? And they're usually they're, are like three, I guess, kind of different forms of cross country racing. There's cross country short track, which is pretty rare, but you see that often like weeknight series. And those are really short races where you just, you know, they're usually somewhere around 20 minutes long. Those are a great spot to start because they're short laps. that are usually pretty non-technical. So that's a really good spot to start then cross country Olympic, which is usually, you know, a series of four laps. Up to geez, eight laps maybe even, In some cases nine laps. And that's, you know, something that's usually a little bit more technical. And then there's cross-country marathon, which are like longer races. So think like the Epic Rides races. Um it, I think that if you can for like Epic rides, for example, how uh, they have like the 15, 35, and 50 mile race, I think starting out with something like that's great in the shorter distance and going up from there, um, I don't have to go up. Yeah. You don't have to though, you know? And it's, so I think that that's a, a, a good spot to start if you don't have short track and then if you want to try the cross country Olympic stuff, you can go from there too, it has its perks since it's laps, but usually it can be pretty intense over there.
1: So with that sort of racing side note next year. Please, podcast listeners, hold me to this. I'm doing all the shorter short businesses. races. Yeah, yeah. On Saturday, the Tahoe Trail 100. Yeah, the Tahoe Trail 50. Yeah, 50 kilometers. 50 kilometers. Yeah. So sounds much more enjoyable. Doing one lap of like three less than three hours sounds so much better than six hours. Yeah, exactly.
0: More time to to carry on and do the rest of or take care of the rest of your stuff. Um, another question here. Uh, this one is from. Uh I guess life is love. It says great show guys, longtime user and listener. I'm a great hill climber and good at turning, but have no sprint. How can I train this sprint energy system? This is a common thing. Cause a lot of riders, when they, especially if they're new to racing, they watch the tour de France, they watch some sort of racing and the sprint is the culmination and like a lot of people just pay attention to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, you really focus on that, but not every race ends that way. Not every race should end that way. And in amateur racing m- many times it doesn't end in a sprint. It ends in a breakaway, something like that. So uh, I, you know, I would say that in this case, maybe you aren't a sprinter naturally. Uh, that doesn't mean that you can't improve your sprint and Mm. you do that with, you know, specific sprint work. It's going to be raising your capacity to, you know, your peak power level, but then also your abilities to to sustain or repeat it. Um, we have all the the plans that you can find out there on train road for that sort of stuff, but really we've talked about this before, even people that don't think they can sprint, chances are you can become a much better sprinter than you currently are or vice versa. Yep. You know, you can change it up. So, uh, it's sprinting is part tactics. And then it's also, you know, of course the, that energy. system. this
1: is, this is another thing I, I don't know if I want to call it sprinting, but it's sprinting while seated. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. um, I, I actually do this a lot. I know Bubba, Mech, I can't see his Melcher. Yeah, yeah. He used to do this. He can go like 40 miles per hour seated. Yeah. He's
0: a multi-time national champion.
1: Exactly. Right. So yeah. that's in master's level. Yeah. Um, and being able to put out a lot of power seated. You don't really get those high level of watts, but yeah. you, you can usually do it for a long time. Yeah. But it saves you so much uh, if you're in a draft, yes. seated. Yeah. And then as you go uh, around that around that person. You don't have to put out as many Watts to go as fast
0: Yeah, and it you, can
1: feel safer too.
0: If you want to put out peak power, you get out of the saddle, right? In yep. that moment. But you can learn that you can put out power without just getting out of the saddle. is like a really important skill to have. I do see a lot of beginners that forget to stand when they're, they're just sprinting, like sitting down, you mm-hmm. know, across the line. It actually happens a lot. Uh, standing, you can put out more torque in the, sh- for a short period of time. It usually drops off very quickly. Uh, so, you know, stay seated for as long as you need, but then when you're really ready to launch your sprint, definitely. I would say that that's the time to hop up,
1: especially if it's uphill. Yes. Um, the more uphill it is, the less aerodynamics we're going to take into effect. So the more like, uh, important it is to put out that peak power.
0: Yes. Um, can we talk more about mountain biking really quick? Uh, question that came in was passing rules for mountain biking. We've talked about this before also on the, there podcast. are no rules. There are no rules. Yeah. You don't have to move over. Uh, but you should, it's a nice thing to do if somebody's faster than you, even if like, if it's at the end of the race, sure. You don't have to move over, but early on in the race, if somebody is, you know, faster than you, you don't have to move over, but I think that it's a good gesture to do so maybe you can catch some good lines. Uh, but there's no reason. And there's also, there's no rule that states that you can't pass on single track. You totally can. Uh, you can ask to pass people. You can pull over and let people pass. You don't just have to wait for double track.
1: I say move over when it's safe. You don't have to do it immediately. Mm -hmm. And two, that my only, my pet peeve is when say we're descending and, uh, there's like eight people, right? And we're in the middle of this and I, I want to get in front of other people too. Yeah. And the person behind wants all eight people to stop so yes. they can go through. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, especially uh, like that's not going to happen. Sometimes it can be longer, it can be 30 people and yeah. someone's like, I'm faster than this and maybe everyone's faster than this, but they want everyone to pull over. I don't Yeah. in I, that situation. I say, Hey, I, I want to go faster too. Yeah. Uh, I, think I don't pull over for that. It,
0: that's just the nature of the beast. If you're yeah. caught in that situation, remember nobody has to pull over. You can ask them, but then don't continually ask them and then also don't be a jerk about it.
1: Especially too, sometimes uh this happened at Segondo in the single track section. I knew that it was gonna open up yeah. in like three minutes. Yeah, yeah. And I could there was no chance anyone was gonna pass. Mm-hmm. And if I were to stop, it would have been hard to get back on the trail because everyone else behind is in a, in a chain. Totally. Um so don't you don't have to yep. to do that and don't be that person who tells everyone to get out of my way because I am faster in my mind. I say you should have gone harder on the climbs. Yeah. If you wanted to be faster than me here, you should have went harder there. Yeah. On the flip side of that. If it's just me and no one's ahead, totally. I'll go off to the side and let you go. Even if there is an open spot coming up in a few minutes.
0: Yeah. Another one is you need a cross country bike to race cross country, like a, a, like a hard tail. A lot of people think that you need, and that's definitely not the case. You see people, especially these days, Bikes with big, you know, big travel on them uh, for suspension. They actually pedal really efficiently. And I see a lot of roadies actually like getting the most racy hardtail they can get, you know, and it's like a hardtail with a super steep head tube angle. And a lot of the time, a roadie actually would benefit more so than perhaps anybody else in having a bike that's a little bit more forgiving, right? Because you're dealing with a bike with a straight up head tube angle and minimal suspension. It has the margin of error is very thin. Yeah. And if you're coming into a you know, a situation where you're uncomfortable handling a bike on dirt, then you want to actually stretch that, that, that little, I guess, margin for error that you would have.
1: Veronica says something. I just wanted to spell this. Um, so she says it's more arrow to have empty bottles on your bike than nothing. there. less wind resistance via a sp- a filled space. And, uh, Veronica, it really depends on the bike and the frame. Exactly. Some bikes are, they're made to be faster with bottles mm-hmm. and other bikes are not Faster with bottles.
0: It depends on the bottle, the shape and size of the frame. It depends on the cages. It depends on everything from the shape of your legs. Also, it totally changes that. It's it's very it's way too variable to just say this is one thing.
1: I go with, with whatever the manufacturer says. Mm-hmm. And I know uh, Jim when we went down to the velodrome. I, I believe just about every TT bike is mm-hmm. faster without a bottle inside the triangle.
0: Yeah, unless that bottle is made to be like a fairing system or something exactly,
1: like that. Exactly, like the Cervelo P5. And even with that, they're usually like, uh, they become neutral rather yeah. than faster. Yeah. So the Cervelo, no, P4 used to have like a little bottle that would go into the, it was a bottle or a storage, but into the, like b- above the bottom bracket and would fill that space in. Yeah. And I believe it was either like a gram or two faster or it was a net neutral.
0: Right, exactly. Um, so a lot of... A lot of people also were asking, uh, questions about in, I guess the, on the mountain bike side of things they were asking about is, is if I race cyclocross, can I just jump into mountain biking at the same category? Or road jumping across and and switching over on those categories, your USAC license. If you look on it, it'll actually tell you what categories you are for every discipline that they have Uh, even track and BMX, right? Like even though you may never race those ones. So it'll, it'll tell you everything that you need to know in terms of that. And then just race the categories. Like, like you should.
1: Jesse has a really good one. Never look back when you hear a crash going to cause another crash <laughs> See this way too point. often. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like on the the mm-hmm. freeway, everyone stops to go look at a crash and then there's another rear end yeah. and it's probably even worse than cycling.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: The other one is if you're going to look back, make sure you can look back without veering off course. Yeah. Uh, that's, mm-hmm. that's a huge one. Um, totally. And it's different level. Pete, just in this last YouTube video, he talked about looking through his elbow behind yeah. while in a turn to see the crit racers. Yeah. I'm going to guess that the majority of listeners can't do that safely, um, (laughs) in a crit. So don't uh, practice these things. And uh, one thing is, uh, when you're on the road, if you're riding the uh, uh, like a bike lane line, there's no cars around, look back, look forward, see where you are. Did you, can you maintain on that white line or not? That's a good skill to have. And, um, I've done it before you ever mm-hmm. done it before? You look back oh, yeah. and you come back and you like swerve. Oh yeah. happens
0: all the time. Yeah. But it's, it's yeah. also,
1: it's a, it's a tactical advantage to be able to look back during a road race or a crit to see where people are, to know if you should be putting the gas on or taking the gas off.
0: It's a huge help. Yeah. It's a huge help.
1: The other one, if you're new to look back, make sure you're on like the back of the breakaway or by yourself. Cause if you're at the back, you can, if you're not good, you can still look back. And that's what I, I won't do it. Actually, I'll never look back while I'm in people are really close to me because yeah. I don't trust myself enough where I think Pete and you even see, you see this, you see this, the professional Peloton during the sprint lead out, they're going mm-hmm. like 38 miles per hour. Yeah. And you see the people at the front looking back for their sprinter yeah. while they're putting out like yeah. 800, 900, a <laughs> thousand Watts. Yeah. They're good. That's don't think that you can do that. Yeah, exactly. Without making sure you can do that.
0: Yeah. Make sure that you're stable first. Uh, another question that we got was about a number pinning and timing chips. And we actually have a video on how to pin your number for different types of races. Uh, we usually recommend using 3M spray it's 3M 77 here in the States is yeah. like the spray that we use. And some people were talking about how the reason that we do that is because it stays on there. You don't have to put holes in your Jersey necessarily. And then it's, uh, it's more aerodynamic. And a lot of people were mentioning the fact that, you know, that they get residue on their Jersey. Something that you want to do with that is you want to spray it onto the number and then let that number tack up for a little bit and then put it onto the jersey. And if you do that, I rarely get residue ever on my on my jerseys then uh, because the residue or the adhesive wants to stick to the number. It's not a bad idea to use pins in the corners there. And then on pinning the number, you'll see this in the video on YouTube. You can go on there, uh, but it's you don't pin put the pins through the holes. Uh, that'll just make the thing a sale and chances are it'll flap and tear off at some point. Instead, you you want to ignore those holes and you want to put that safety pin through the number, through the Jersey, then back up through the number and through the Jersey. I usually do the corners. And then if you can, it's not a bad idea to do one in between each corner as well. So that gives you eight pins for one number on your Jersey.
1: I do 100% spray all the time yeah. because it's, it's the, the pinning the number is just another stressful thing it's where fun. I, uh, you can use like the pillow technique we have in the video, yeah. or the steering wheel technique, or you can ask a friend. I ask a friend, but uh, there's been many times where I ask a friend, <clears throat> yeah, and then I go and ask another friend to fix the job that the first friend did. Yeah, exactly. Because you uh, and and when someone pins you, make sure you're like in your bike racing position. Don't yes. be standing up straight.
0: Yeah, because then it's just going to be popping all over the place when you when you ride. So exactly. Uh, But Could tear the, your jersey
1: even the spray. You still need a friend, but it just takes 10 seconds and it's less likely for them to mess up. I find too, that I am, I need to be the one that sprays it every time. Yes, I asked a friend who sprays it. I had one friend spray it who was in construction <laughs> and he just doused that thing with like yes. so much glue. It actually went through to my skin. Oh my gosh. Um, I could feel it there. It's number stayed on. <laughs> um, I'm sure. The yeah. other thing I've noticed is when you do glue it, there are certain types of material on your Jersey. Um, on our quarry ones, there's yeah. one strip where it doesn't stick
0: where it's texturized and in that case, yeah, it's not going to stick quite as well.
1: So if I, now that I know that I just have mm-hmm. the person, I say, don't stick it on this, move it someplace else.
0: Yep. Yeah. I think it's a good idea. Um, uh, another question, I guess this one goes back to, uh, the question that was talking about how can they be a better sprinter? And they mentioned that they weigh 110 pounds and they're five foot 11. So that's really, really skinny. So their question is, how can I do it? You know, how do I develop a sprint as a very light rider? It's actually not crazily different than what you would do. If you're a heavy rider, it's still, you're training the same energy system. The only thing that you'll want to think of is the fact that you'll probably want, you know, if you have more muscle mass within you know a certain respect that really aids pedaling, then that should help you usually in a sprint because you're going to have more, I guess, power capability out of those muscles. So uh, you can, you can focus on strength training. We have a video on YouTube about that, uh, but really in terms of how you train the energy system, whether you're light or heavy, it's going to be the same.
1: Yeah. And the cool part is. And you see this at the top professional level, there's people who are huge. Marcel Kittel yeah. to like very, very tiny people yeah. Cav's pretty tiny. Yeah. Tiny. Um,
0: dude. And they have a Caleb Ewan really tiny dude. Yeah. He looks really muscly. Cav doesn't look as muscly, right. And um, they can still sprint. So, uh, yeah, it really depends on, on the type of rider, uh, that, that you are. But as far as how you train it, it's the same.
1: Veronica has another question. This one's for you, Jonathan, um, as a, as a roadie and cat three cycle cross racer, what's a good beginner mountain bike. I've heard to learn on a hardtail, but the learning curve can be so quick Are you better off just starting with a full suspension and locking out the, the rear.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I and mean, Well, one thing to think of, if you lock out your suspension, that bike is designed to actually move through the suspension travel. So if you lock that out, you're not going to be getting the intended handling benefits. So a hardtail is actually designed to, to flex and to give. So it's not, you know, perfectly rigid, but it does have some give in it and some flex with your full suspension bike. It's not designed to do that. It's just designed to use the suspension for that flex. So if you lock it out forever, then you could very well even be doing like damage to like bearings or pivot points on the bike, just because it's probably not meant to go through those stresses all the way through. Uh, but in many cases, it's arguable that riding a full suspension bike is faster than a hardtail on in almost every scenario. And this is like definitely going against convention however science i think is going to back this up just like lower tire pressure is something that science is backed up now that it is faster than mm-hmm. than higher tire pressure if you have a bike that's locked out in the back or a hardtail, and you're going over an uneven surface, any bump that you hit transfers forward momentum into upper momentum. But if you have a full suspension bike, they can effectively soak that up and preserve more of that momentum and keep it going forward. Then you're actually faster. The only downside to that is if you have a bike that loses that much or more energy in terms of pedaling, right? The modern modern bikes aren't like that. And actually I talked to Jeff Kabush. He's on that new, the Yeti SB 100, like I am mm-hmm. He rode the whiskey 50 and he never once touched, touched, never once touched his lockout lever and that has long sections of road and he still kept it unlocked. Cause he said that he feels that that bike, you know, pedals just as it pedals more efficiently. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that it's something that more people or more people need to let go of the fear that, you know, having a bike that isn't perfectly stiff in the back is, is faster. It's really not.
1: So for new people though. Uh, full suspension you're thinking.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And for experienced people, full suspension. If you're a brand new rider, getting on a hardtail can teach you some things because the margin for error is lower. So you won't get away with those habits, but I would recommend getting a full suspension bike than just getting, yeah. you know, a class. Tomorrow. Who has the
1: money to go like, here's my training bike for yeah, exactly. nine months. And then I'm going to switch over to another.
0: Yeah. Bike. Get a full suspension one and then uh, try to go to a clinic. That would really
1: help. Another one for you. Flats versus clipping in your new mountain bike r- rider. It can be extremely difficult to have be clipped in it's, yeah. it, and it's scary, right? Yeah.
0: I'd say start on flats. Uh, yeah. and even if you ride on the road, it's not a bad idea to ride on flats for a while. Uh, it's, it's a really good opportunity for you to build awareness and also it'll build like for jumping and work, getting over things. It's going to build the proper technique. A lot of people just kind of pick up the back end with being clipped in. And when you do that, you just throw yourself into a position to go over the bars pretty easily. So
1: especially for new racers for Veronica, since she's a cross racer Mm -hmm. and she says she's used to clipping in, Mm -hmm. I would say be clipped in. Yeah, go ahead. What happens is, and if you haven't experienced this as a new rider Mm -hmm. and all veterans have experienced this, when you first ride, you clipped in, you stop. There's there's nothing exciting going on. Exactly. You try to lift your foot, you get stuck <laughs> yes. because you didn't twist it, and, and you do this slow motion fall where you're. Oh, like, it's the worst. It's embarrassing. It always hurts. And uh, I swear sometimes. it
0: hurts worse than crashing on fast stuff sometimes.
1: Yeah, because you all the weight lands. Hit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But Veronica should be very experienced with as a roadie and a cross. I mean, cross you just clip and unclip the whole time.
0: Totally. Yep. Absolutely. Um, let's see, I guess that we're kind of bumping up a, across the time on this one. If you have any more questions on YouTube uh, or on Facebook, if you're joining us live, you can send them in. Veronica has another man. Veronica's got a lot.
1: Um, <laughs> and she makes another good point when you're in a pack, uh, don't you just look on your arm to keep track of shadows and tires yeah. and totally, if I do a heart attack, I will totally just look down, put my head down Mm -hmm. and you can see if there's a tire right on you or depending on where the sun is, you can see what people are behind you. You don't always have to look back, Yeah, but I'm talking about if you're looking back for the field, you can't like look. Down far enough, totally. Uh, depending on how the course is,
0: yeah. And if you're in a race, uh, don't be afraid to look around a bit and to keep your head up instead of looking down. If, especially if it's a criterium, you might be able to see, you know, in a corner or something like that. You might be able to catch out of your peripheral vision, see the pack, and then that can you know save you some some little time where you might break focus. And that can be pretty easy. Uh, for those that are, we have one question where somebody's asking us to. Uh, Include the questions that we cover on the podcast, uh, or I should say, in the live stream on the podcast. We want you all to join us live too, so <laughs> so you can join us for that. Um, let's see, Do you have any other ones, Nate, that you wanted to cover? I'm running through my list on topics, and I feel like we've pretty much covered everything on there. I'm good. All right. Um, well then in that case, thanks for joining us. And hopefully this was a good walkthrough for those that are considering racing or for those that have raced. maybe it's a refresher. Maybe you learned something, you know, a specific something, if you are an experienced racer and you see a new racer, be kind, uh, road racing can be, especially road racing can be like a super intense and kind of unfriendly world sometimes. So, Mm uh, we can change that. Racing doesn't have to be so serious. It can be fun, but especially above all, it can be kind. So. Uh, so yeah, hopefully all of us listen to this podcast, we can be good examples of how to welcome people into racing and maybe share some tips that we've talked about today. So if you have training questions, uh, anything like that, uh, whether it's, uh, or if it's trainer road related, anything like that, send it in dot slash podcast, and we'll be going through that in uh, next week's podcast. Coach Chad will hopefully be here with us at that point.
1: He should be back from vacation. By he any. should be back. Um, also, you if you're on YouTube, uh, like our videos and subscribe. That helps us grow that channel. And for those who are uh, uh, want to learn more about training, go to trainerroad.com. Yep. And if you do use Trainer road, please share it because the, the bigger we grow, the more things we can do and execute our roadmap faster, and that helps us.
0: Absolutely. Thanks, everybody. We will chat with you soon.
1: Bye-bye.